Man, you guys can grab a seat. Well, good morning, Christ Church. Uh, I'm excited uh, to open God's Word with you. And if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, we're continuing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not taking any breaks. We're not stopping. We're just, we're trucking through. We're running through. And uh, last week, if you were here, Pastor Brian uh, preached a message on how Jesus fulfills uh, the law and the prophets in, in the, uh, really verses 17 to 20 in Matthew 5. And, and we're going to be venturing a little bit further uh, into this next section. And, uh, and hopefully we're here, um, but I'm also going to recap this a little bit. But, but Matthew 5 verse 20 is actually the, the last passage that Pastor Brian preached on last week is so pivotal for us to see for the, really the next six teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but this morning, um, we are talking about something called like a better righteousness or a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the topic, oops, and the topic that we're talking about is that of murder. Uh, yeah, not just anger. Uh, your Bible might actually title this section anger. Uh, this morning, we're talking about murder. Uh, Jesus says that anger is murder, and so we're talking about murder this morning. And really, to get a good context for the next uh, six messages, we really need to see what uh, what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5, verse 20. Uh, and so let's read that together. Let's get our eyes on, the God, on God's Word, and let's read that together and seek to understand how he's trying to open up this next section for us uh, so that you can really lean in and try to understand what he's teaching us. Uh, so this is what it says in verse 20. For I tell you... Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has this really powerful phrase, right? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven if your righteousness as a person does not exceed of that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit, and we're going to actually see in the, you know, in the next six messages how Jesus does this or what Jesus is leaning into. But ultimately, Jesus doesn't just want us to follow the letter of the law, but he wants us to actually see the heart and the intent behind what God has as righteous standards for us as his people. Okay, and so like in this case, uh, really in these six teachings, Jesus doesn't just um, tell us what the outward behavior is, but he, he's actually trying to get at the heart, which we know God cares so deeply about the heart, about transforming the heart from one degree of glory to another. That's what he's doing in us as people. Um, but these six sections, he, he talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and even loving your enemies. Um, and all of them have some Old Testament uh, commandment or Old Testament teaching uh, where Jesus kind of in a formula will say, you've heard it said this, but then Jesus will double down and he says, but I say to you, and he kind of clarifies the interpretation of what that passage is. And so today our topic is murder, but um, before we get there, we also need to talk about this other idea of the incompleteness of the righteousness of the Pharisees. You see, Back then, uh, the, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of the religious leaders of the time. They were, you know, the pastors, the priests, the people leading uh, the, the churches or the synagogues or the, at the temple uh, week to week. And they would teach something that actually probably wasn't, I don't know, wasn't the whole message of what Jesus and God was trying to communicate in, uh, in the Old Testament. And we'll see that with, with this topic of anger. Um, but there was this exterior righteousness that was always taught uh, by the scribes and the Pharisees, but then there was this failure um, on, on, the, on the sense of like motive and intent that, that was always missed in the teaching. 
uh, and we'll see that again in a moment. But uh, actually, in Matthew 23, which we gotta, we're going to look at a snippet of this to kind of help flesh this out a little bit for us, is that there was a, a teaching that would happen, but along with the teaching, there wasn't a lived, a, a lived life. And actually, um, Matthew 23 as a whole, um, God calls the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites seven times, which if you know in the Bible, there's this, this number of completion. The, you know, seven is the number of completion. So Jesus is literally like calling the Pharisees and the scribes the hypocrites of hypocrites, right? So like, you know, Jesus, Jesus loves, you know, he doesn't mince his words at all. He's just like, you're the hypocrite of hypocrites, right? But here in Matthew, we'll see it on the screen here, Matthew 23, 28, or 27 and 28, he says this, Jesus, in this whole section, you can go back and read this. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, right? Here it is, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, right? Beauty is a great thing, but if you're just outwardly appearing beautiful, then you're dead with people's bones and all cleanliness on the inside. So you also outwardly appear righteous, the scribes and the Pharisees do. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God's desire for us as his people is that we would be whole. That we wouldn't just act, but that God actually wants to transform our hearts. So God doesn't want any religious leader or any disciple of Christ to be, hypo- to be a hypocritically righteous person. God doesn't just care about our actions. He cares about what's happening on inside of us. And we're going to see this in Jesus' words in a couple minutes. But here's what we're going to see the next six messages is this, is that Jesus is going to confront the hypocrisy of the human condition. But then on top of it, he's going to invite us as disciples to a righteous whole which only can be found in him. The righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is a righteousness that's both right action and right motive. So Jesus' clarification on these six teachings is going to help us see the heart issue at play. We're going to see that today again, but, but here's what I just, I just want to say this to you. God wants to sanctify the hypocrisy in your life. God wants to remove your heart of stone and bring you into wholeness as a person. The gospel is not just a renewal of external beauty and piety. It's actually a renewal of your your heart and your person as a whole. God wants to do that work, and that's really what Jesus is getting at here. But, But before we get there, I think you as a person need to ask yourself this question, is do you want to possess a better righteousness? Do you want to not be a hypocrite? Do you want God to remove the hypocrisy in your life? Do you want to have righteous integrity as a person? Do you want to be the sort of person who says something and actually faithfully lives in light of that based off God's standards and not our own standards? I can't answer this question for you as a person. Each and every one of us has to stand before God one day and say, you know what? I am unrighteous, unclean, but you know what? I've got Jesus who's given me a righteousness, who's actually led me to a life of transformation in, in light of the gospel that's, that covers me. And, and, and therefore, I lived in light of the kingdom that's coming with a better righteousness that you've given to me. Okay, that's something we all have to do. And here's my hope, and here's maybe what I truly believe, and I've seen this in my own life, and, and I pray, and, I, and I, to be honest, I think I've seen this in other people's lives. 
is when we take the inconsistencies in our life, the hypocrisy in our lives, and we genuinely humble ourselves before God and say, God, would you remove this hypocrisy from my life? I think God blesses that, and I think God does that work in transforming us. And that's what we want to do this morning. And so your heart has to be ready and soft for God to to really mold you from being, frankly, we're going to get there. I'm going to call you a murderer in a little bit, just letting you know uh, that that God wants to actually remove that and have us to have a, a disposition towards others of wholeness and of goodness that God also has uh, towards people that are, that are in Christ with righteousness. But that being said, I want to pray, and let's, let's get into our text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word here in a moment. God, I, um, I pray that we as a people would have softened and humble hearts. God, you are the one who melts the heart. You are the one who, who melts the heart of stone and leads us in the paths and the ways of righteousness. God, I pray that we as a people would see our sin, but we'd see the beauty of the gospel and the redemption in the cross and that God, um, that we glorify you because of it and we'd live differently, that we wouldn't just be externally righteous, God, but that we would do the work so that we would be fully whole, that we'd have integrity and, and, and righteous integrity in our lives. God, we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. All right, so let's, let's, get our, let's get our eyes on God's word. And, and the big idea, which we're going to see from this text, uh, is, is this, is that uh, Jesus will confront the murderer's heart in all of us, and he's going to lead us to a life of vertical and horizontal reconciliation, right? So Jesus is going to confront a murderer's heart in us, and he's going to lead us to a life of, of vertical and horizontal reconciliation. But verse 21, let's look at it together. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there and before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You see, this morning, Jesus is going to confront something in us that's much deeper than just an outward reality, just an outward action. He's going to confront our hearts. He's going to con- confront all of us specifically when it comes to the concept of, of murder and anger. Um, and again, our big idea is that he confronts our murderous hearts. But, but our first point that we're going to see from this text in verse 21 is this, is that God reveals his righteous standards in his moral command. God reveals his righteous standards in his moral command. If you, if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at uh, the book of Exodus, we actually get the, the Ten Commandments, right? The, the Decalogue, he gives it to us. And in Exodus 20, verse 13 says, you shall not murder, right? So murder in Exodus was understood as, as kind of a premeditated, careless, or negligent killing of one another. That's what, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees would teach what murder is. Um, and I'll be honest with you, that's a good ethical standard. Like, 
I like that God said we shouldn't murder each other. Like, we just had Thanksgiving, right? And, like, that's a, it's a good standard to have. Like, I'm thankful that I get to go to church on Sunday. I get to go to Thanksgiving. And I, I should assume that my family, I mean, it's just, you know, just my family. Like, they should assume that, like, they're not going to murder me, right? Like, that's good. But I know that there's a lot of other commandments. Um, but, but the reality is it's just not murdering someone seems like a pretty uh, low bar of a flourishing community, Right? Like, imagine, like, oh, yeah, like, praise the Lord. Like, I just know I'm not going to get murdered because, like, God said I can't, right? Like, we know that community is so broken in our world and in, frankly, I mean, in different places and relationally in our church and our families and in all these different places that, like, like murder is happening not just for the physical act, but, but at a much deeper level, at the heart level, right? And we're going we're gonna to get into that, but thankfully, um, God actually puts accountability in place, which we'll see this both in, in the action, but also in the heart, is God puts accountability in place uh, for, the Old Testament, for the Old Testament community. Uh, and he actually says, Exodus, you can write these down, Exodus 21, 12, he says, whoever strikes a man that he dies shall be put to death, right? So like there's consequences and accountability for the action of literally murdering someone, right? Good. Like I'm, I'm actually thankful for that. I love God gives us parameters to live in. That's actually for, for my benefit, for our benefit. It's a grace towards us. Um, Leviticus 23, 17 says, whoever takes the life of any man or any human shall be put to death, right? Like I love it. Like this is good. Like I want to, I want there to be consequences if my neighbor murders somebody, Right? But then further, Numbers 35, 12 says, the manslayer must not die until he stands before a congregation for judgment. Okay, like, I'm appreciative of these, God, right? But like, again, low bar if, if we're just interpreting it and just seeing it as like, thou shalt not murder. Like, just the physical, premeditated, negligent act, whatever it is, if it's simply just God calling us not to murder each other, it's an incredibly low bar of what a flourishing community should be, right? We have agreement on that. But Jesus, in verse 22 here in a minute, isn't going to mince his words. And actually, I want to be very clear with you. Jesus does not sterilize his words. He's going to double down on something, and he's going to help us see something about ourselves that we have to be willing to see. God, actually, is going to be the one to reveal this to us, is, is the fact that, um, that he has judgment towards our unrighteousness and Jesus is speaking about murder, and the concept of murder to Jesus is at the heart level and not just the external level. And so the second point that we see, or we're going to see really in verse 22, is that Jesus reveals God's heart in his moral command. Jesus reveals God's heart in his moral command, and, and actually at the same time reveals our heart, which is cool. But Jesus emphasizes that it's not simply just the, the act of murder, which God hates, right? God commands against the act of murder, but but the emotion of anger and actually the speech that we have towards other people uh, is, is unrighteous as well and deserving of judgment. Let's, let's read this together, or verse 22. What does it say? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, anger, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever, whoever says you fool will be li liable to the hell of fire. So there's a couple things happening here in verse 22. Jesus is clarifying what, what was intended with the Old Testament law. And the first just order of business here is Jesus says, I say to you, right? Jesus has the authority as God's, God's son, as really God himself, the triune God, the son, to clarify on his own authority what God was intending with this. First of all, beautiful. I love it. But then he goes on, he says that, he says everyone, right? And he actually says that everyone. If you look at your text, it says everyone, whoever, and whoever. 
he's, he's pulling us all into this. He's not saying, you know what, if, if you fit these categories here, there, everywhere. No, it's like, it's like all means all. Whoever or all or everyone. You are culpable if you are angry with somebody, if you are, you know, say a, a mean word to somebody, if you call someone a fool or a moron. I, I literally had um, someone to come up to us at our church. My wife called me a moron this morning, and I was just laughing because it's like, yes, like, like that's what Jesus is getting at. It's like when we uh, have, have a hatred and a speech towards other people, to Jesus, to God's righteous standard, that is murder. Do you see that? That is murder. I'll just be honest. You are a murderer. I just took the air out of the room. We laugh and we joke about that, but the reality is, is this is God's righteous standard. It's so different than what we've named as a righteous standard in the world, isn't it? It's so different. But the passage actually goes on and, um, you know, Jesus roots the authority in himself, tells us who he's talking to, but then he, he clarifies the action. Maybe a question that's coming to mind is, why does God care about my anger towards other people? Why does God really care when I say that my husband or wife, whatever it is, is a fool? Why does God care when I gossip about people? Because he knows at the heart of it, there's this, there's this, that, that anger inside of us is actually like the seed of murder. Anger inside of us is actually the seed that leads people in the Old Testament and the New in different ways to the physical act of murder. And so Jesus isn't just, you know, saying, hey, you know, just keep everything bottled up inside and, and hopefully you never attack anybody or murder anybody. He's like, no, like, I want to change your heart because your heart is wicked and deceitful above all else, right? That's why when people say, follow your heart, you're like, no, don't follow your heart, right? Like, your heart's bad, right? Your heart is part of the sinful condition since the fall that lives inside of us that God wants to redeem and make new, but really what it gets down to, I think, is this word contempt. Have you guys ever heard of this word contempt before? Contempt is looking at somebody and thinking they're less than you. When you say something bad about someone behind someone's back or when you gossip, what, what we often do as humans is we create our own categories of righteousness and our own standards of righteousness and we say, we make it, like, we make racism and bigotry and all these, all these other things okay because we've created our own moral framework to work within. And what we say is, is we say, God's moral framework is, no, nah, nah, I don't like that one. That's too, too strict, right? This one over here is like, like, hey, they are less than me. And so I can self-justify my action towards that person because of my own selfish framework, right? Because of my own self-justifying, self-righteous framework. Because I'm judging myself based off this and not actually based off God's uh, standards of righteousness, right? So we're, we spend so much time over here just trying to, you know, get by and like, man, like I, I said these bad things. And you, you guys know this, like, uh, he's a good person, but like, you, you know when people say things like that? Like, wait, wait, what are you really saying about that person? Are you actually degrading the value that God has intrinsically given them? You know, we think to ourselves we can rationalize so many, uh, you, know, you know, feelings of hatred or, or anger. Sometimes it's just like microaggressions towards people. But that's what we're doing with our heart, and that is the seed of murder. You know, God wants to take that from you and, 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 and redeem it. How long have you gone in your life with just being okay with that seed of murder in your heart? 
You think God's flourishing community wants a seed of murder in the hearts of his disciples? No, I don't think he does. You know, we take something that God created good and we minimize it and we, we say it has less value and therefore we justify our actions towards other people. But God is actually clearly concerned not just about our outward actions but also about our hearts. You know, by Jesus' def- definition, we commit murder when we lose our temper at someone, when we harbor grudges, when we gossip, and when we are spiteful. You know, Scripture says um, that we should think the best of people. It's a way of loving other people. Um, but also, just at different times, that we should love them like, sh- like sheep without a shepherd, right? But, but, but the reality is, is, is we as people don't live up to God's righteous standard. Right? We all harbor anger and bitterness and resentment and, and conceit and bigotry at so many different levels in our hearts towards people. That is, that is what it means to be human. But that's not what it means to be redeemed in, in light of the kingdom that's coming. God actually wants to take that and change that. You know, John Pennington, uh, he put it this way, and it, we'll see on the screen. He says, To have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, disciples, or you and me, must face the issue of the inner person. Not committing the physical act of murder is good and right, but it is not the true test of righteousness in light of the coming kingdom. Examining one's attitudes and speech are just as important as refraining from homicidal violence. Jesus doesn't just clarify what murder is. He, he clarifies what, what, what or murder externally is. He clarifies what murder of the heart is. He helps us see that, but, but actually, beautifully, he actually shows us the accountability and the consequence he has for it. If you look at verse 22 again, you know, we talked about Jesus establishing a short authority, you know, who he's speaking to, what, you know, what the issue is, but then he also gives us some accountability. And this is what he says to us, and, and I think we can all acknowledge we are murderers, right? He says that you will be liable to judgment, right? That actually, he says in three different ways, we're liable to judgment, we're liable to the council, or death is really the, the, the parallel from the Old Testament, and then hell or separation from God because of our murderous hearts towards other people. Like, Jesus isn't sugarcoating this at all. This isn't, the, the best part about this, this is crazy to say, the best part about this is the fact that we can't just slap the gospel on this and say it's okay. Ah, that's the Old Testament. That's what a lot of people say with things in the Old Testament. It's like, ah, no, no. Jesus is speaking to us as disciples in the New Testament saying, you are a murderer if you insult, gossip, have hatred, or bitterness in your heart towards another person. Aren't you glad you came here to hear a good word of grace this morning? Right? We, again, we laugh about that, but the fact is, is like Jesus is not sterilizing or mincing words or, or trying to beat around the bush at all. He is to the point showing us the depravity of our hearts and our beings. Jesus is pointed and serious and wants to get our attention towards this. It's not okay to live our lives as a Christian and just allow this to fester for, for years and decades. God actually wants to, wants to change our hearts and redeem them. Jesus is actually showing us that we don't measure up. You can't measure up. You, by your righteousness, will not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You deserve judgment, death, and separation from God. That's crazy. We need to stop trying to self-justify our actions by our own standards. We need to stop trying to self-justify our heart by our own sense of righteousness, and we need to stop looking to other people uh, and comparing ourselves to them and saying, I'm not, bad as, I'm not as bad as them. I didn't do that. 
I'm good. I've got my own, you know, parameters that I'm living into. But God's like, no, I have a standard that's way higher than yours. And you know what? Just being honest with you, we are judged not by our own standards. We are judged by God's standard. We are judged by God's standards, not our own. A hatred and conceit and contempt in your heart proves that you are actually a murderer in the eyes of God. You are a murderer in the eyes of God. You know, in 1 John 3.15, it says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is a hard message, friends. This isn't, this isn't you know, lollipops and rainbows and gumdrops. This is, Jesus is confronting us. He's not just talking about some people way back then. He's talking about us right now. And even John is saying, even anyone who hates his brother, that's an internal action, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life biding in them. <sighs> the New Testament is known as the graceful testament, but, but do you see it? Do you see any grace? I see God's righteous judgment on an unrighteous, self-justifying, self-glorifying people. The consequences of your murderous heart, as Jesus would say, is judgment, death, and separation from God. And I'm not trying to speak hyperbolically. I'm not trying to draw more attention to something that's not there. But the reality is you read this text, where else could you go? Jesus is calling us to recognize that we don't measure up to God's standards. If you are a human and you know your sin and recognize it, you know you don't measure up to God's standards. It's comical. By our own righteousness, we don't measure up. We deserve judgment, death, and separation from God. But so what are we supposed to do here? Do we just like pray and call it a day? Do we just assume that Jesus has got it and go from there? No, like, like Jesus actually spoken a word to this. This passage actually, uh, the grace in this passage, maybe you don't see it, but the grace in this passage is that we come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of our own self-righteousness and realize we need a righteousness that's greater than ours. That is actually the grace in this passage, and it's a beautiful thing. And so God's righteous standard shows us the depth of our depravity. And Pastor Brian said this in a quote yesterday, but our, the law and our depravity actually drives us to the gospel. It drives us humbly to the feet of Jesus to say, I can't do this. I don't have anything that it takes to not murder somebody by your ethical righteous standards. God, I can't do that. If you know your heart, you know you can't. You know you can't. But God leads me to lay down my own sense of righteousness and pursue one that only he could give. A rightful conviction over my spiritual condition leads me to the feet of Jesus as a, as a beggar and as someone who's, who, who's seeking mercy and seeking grace. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to have this up on the screen, it's so pointed towards this passage. I feel like Paul's even just, just seeing and knowing what Jesus wrote and just, and just writing right uh, as a result of it. He says this, verse 16, from now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ, what? Reconciled us to himself vertically and gave us, horizontally here, the ministry of reconciliation. And it goes on, it says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And check this out. Not 
counting their trespasses against them. God looks at you when you have Christ's righteousness over you and says, I don't count your murderous heart and your murderous attitudes against you because we have the righteousness of Christ over us. It continues, it says, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God vertically. For, for your sake, he became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is a, is a righteousness that's given to us by faith in Christ. And it's a righteousness that, that seeks to pervade not just our, our lives positionally before God, but one that seeks to transform and change our hearts. You know, Scripture talks about how when we are in the presence of God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. God transforms us when we're with him. So by faith, I, you, we cling to the, to the God of grace who gives me a positional righteousness with God before, you know, before the Father. And instead of seeing my emptiness, my depravity, who, you know, my brokenness, my human predicament, I actually have the ability to be seen and known by God as righteous that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But then by grace, I'm just known by God and, and his righteousness pervades my life and it actually wants to transform and do a work in me so that I'm, so that I'm changed. That, I, that I'm not a murderer anymore, that I actually want to speak life into people's lives and encourage them, right? Like that's what God wants in and around our, our lives. But because of that, because of what Jesus has done, God does not hold my sin against me. But check this out. When we humble ourselves, you know, at the beginning of the message, I asked you, do you want this for yourself? If, if you want a person who's, who's rid of the hypocrisy in your life, you have to humble yourself before God. You have to put aside your own sense of righteousness as a person and draw near to God by faith, however sinful, however broken, however murderous you are, because God says the old has gone and behold, the new has come because Christ's righteousness has covered you as a person and that again exceeds that righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, true Christian morality arises out of a person's heart, not just what, what you do. You could do the right thing a hundred times, but you could have a bitter and angry and wrongful heart in that. God wants to actually change your heart so that consistently abiding over the course of your life, you do the right thing for the right reason at the right time. Not just so you do it out of, out of legalistic, literal duty, trying to obey the law of not murdering people. God wants to change you. Do you humble yourself before God and ask him to do that work? But then as a fruit of that, and here's our final point, is that reconciliation is a fruit of kingdom culture. You know, if you've been reconciled with God, and even as 2 Corinthians 5 lays out for us, there is a fruit that comes from me being reconciled with God, truly reconciled, humbling myself, seeing my life in light of God's moral righteous standards, and actually saying, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to faithfully live into that, and in the midst of that, God's going to transform me, and the overflow of that is that God gives me the capacity to humble myself towards other people and reconcile relationships with other people right? And we're going to nuance this a little bit, but like God calls us, even in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage, to be ambassadors of the gospel and ministers of reconciliation in the world, right? One, we lead people to Christ so that they can be reconciled to God, but also among brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we, we reconcile relationships with each other when we have disagreements. 
We don't just say, ah, oh, they made me so mad and I'm just going to treat them like I don't even know them anymore. It's like, no, like, like God tells us that a flourishing community is a community that goes and reconciles with each other. How many of you guys have, you know, Thanksgiving this last week, right? How, you know, what do you do? What do you not talk about around Thanksgiving? Politics, religion, you know, elections, whatever it is. Like, you just, you, people say that, right? It's kind of a joke, again, but like, people say it for a good reason because they don't want to, you know, bring chasms in relationships in families. But the reality is, is, is Christians should be able to, all the time, talk about difficult subjects. We should be able to. And if, hopefully there's not personal vendettas or personal issues with people. But like when there is personal issues, we should seek to reconcile it. We, can see, we should seek to reconcile it. Did you know conflict's not bad? Conflict's not bad. It's actually a good thing. Conflict is a sign that we're living. I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> right? Conflict is a sign that we are actually trying to, trying to move forward. Usually when people are incredibly passionate about one thing or another thing, it's because they have a lot of love towards something. And when we have conflict, it's a sign that we love things at different levels, oftentimes. We should engage and, and seek to reconcile relationships in the midst of conflict. But oftentimes, um, you know, in this life, I don't know if you've seen this, but we settle for, for fractured relationships. I, I see this in my own family in different ways. I see this in other people's family. But, but a relationship gets fractured and, and no one ever actually addresses the real issue. And so it just goes on and perpetuates for for, for months, for years, for decades, and everyone just, just, you know, mums the word, we just don't deal with it. I, I don't think there's anything more unhealthy in the Christian church today than people doing that inside the church. We cannot be a body of believers who just says mums the word and never brings things forward. Not that we have, again, some agenda or vendetta, but that we truthfully are seeking to understand and know and love and, and actually reconcile relationships and different things. Again, healthy relationships are something that God, I think, is calling us to, but also healthy reconciliation. Again, healthy conflict. There's right ways of handling these things. As people who recognize our spiritual condition, we are humble and poor in spirit as we look, looked at in the Beatitudes. These are, these are moves that, that the gospel actually imprints on us and actually transforms us to be a sort of people who pursue reconciliation in the world. But there's two moves from the last two illustrations Jesus gives. And the first one is, is something that we can do is that brotherly reconciliation precedes sacrifice. Verses 23 and 24. Brotherly reconciliation precedes sacrifice. So verse 23 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave, big word, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. First, and then come give your offer, of, your offer to the Lord. You know, this is not just some like petty, um, <laughs> like unreasonable, irrational grudge, but this is like a true and legitimate grudge between believers. Like if you are here at worship and you're thinking about giving, but you have a real issue with someone, like you are the aggrieving party. You need to go deal with that before you serve, before you worship, before you give to the Lord. That's what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, I care more about your heart than just outwardly looking at right and doing the right thing. That has implications for, for even worship on Sunday mornings. Um, but here's this. There's this word in verse 23. You see this. It's the word remember. I think God sometimes uses words like that uh, to key us into maybe a spiritual reality. When, when God calls you to remember something, maybe it's actually the Spirit convicting you. Maybe it's actually the Spirit convicting you of someone, even, even right now, that you are unreconciled to and that you have a work to reach out and connect with them. And maybe, in your sense, apologize to them for what you've done, 
Or maybe you are the party that was hurt and you're still waiting to be reconciled. Would you just sit there and pray for that person? You know, would you just seek to love them as God loves them and not devalue them with your actions, but would you seek to, to see them as God sees them amidst their lostness, whatever it might be? But Jesus is actually telling us to get our priorities in straight. This is, this is so interesting. Usually people say things like, you know, God, my wife, my family, and, you know, and they go in this order, right? Jesus is actually saying before, like if you're a believer, Jesus is saying before you come and worship me, go be reconciled to your brother. So interesting. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, it's not just about the outward raising your hands in worship or just like the, the monotony of, of just, you know, giving that, giving that gift or, or whatever it is. He's saying, go be reconciled in community to your brothers and sisters. God's saying, that's more important to me than you actually just showing up and being here. It's crazy. Jesus is telling us that before we worship and make sacrifices to God, we need to be reconciled to one another. We can't settle for a low bar of fractured relationships in the church. We can never do that. The second we do that, I, I truly believe we're just going to create a chasm of relationships that just leaves a wake of, of pain and hurt. We can't do that, friends. But the second move is this, is reconcile with your accuser quickly. Verse 25 says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the, ju to the judge and the judge to the guard and to be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You know, it's important to remember, and I, this is a hard application because it could be nuanced a thousand different ways, but, but maybe here's some principles is this. It's important to recognize that even in legal situations, while there's some situations that need to go before the court, you can still seek reconciliation with a person, relationally. God in Scripture in Romans tells us that we need it as much as it is with us, as much as it depends with us, live peaceably with all. That's a responsibility and a work that we have as Christians. Whether they're a believer or a non-believer, we seek to be reconciled to them. If they're, if they're a non-believer, our lack of reconciliation with them will hurt the gospel witness to them. But on the other note, just going to damage the body of Christ. God's calling us to, to lean into these things. But we also must solely note that, or must note that it's not the sole responsibility of the person uh, who's seeking reconciliation. It's, it, you know, it takes two to tango, right? If someone is, is neglectful, is, is turning away, it doesn't want to repent or doesn't want to turn, don't, don't keep that on your shoulders. That's not you. That's, that's for God to deal with their heart in, in God's timing. Don't, don't take that on yourself. You know, Daniel L. Aiken said it this way, and you can look up on the screen. It says, God has called those who have experienced the peace of God to be peacemakers insofar as they can. God has called all those who have experienced reconciliation to be reconcilers insofar as they can with others. It, it, it requires humility. This is really getting what Jesus talked about, being poor in spirit. It requires reaching out and getting out of your comfort zone. Gosh, it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable to have hard conversations. But here's what you'll find. You'll find that it was worth it. And, and Daniel gives us this, uh, this reflection here is, is that our God in reconciling us through Jesus thought it was. Amidst your depravity, God said it was worth reconciling and getting, you know, rolling his, his sleeves up and getting muddy and wanting to transform our wayward and wandering and, and, and murderous hearts. 
in the same way we should grow in our compassion for other people, to see them how God sees them. And, and, and where we're at wrong, we need to humble ourselves and apologize. But, but maybe where other people are wrong, I need to have the, the compassion and, and the heart that God has for that person. And that takes time. We're humans, right? Like it, it doesn't just magically happen. But I think a desire of our core being should genuinely want to be uh, people who um, have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The self-righteousness that we often categorize ourselves into is not enough. We need a better righteousness. We can't keep living by our own human standards. We have to live by God's standards. When we get to heaven, God will judge us not based on, on our standards, but on his standards. We need Christ's righteousness to come over us. We as disciples need to truly ask ourselves, am I pursuing this? Do I want this? Am I living in light of this? God has no desire to fill this room with people who are just going to be religious people like the Pharisees and the scribes. God has no desire for us to just be externally pious and externally do the right things. He wants to transform our hearts. If we, th- if God, if we think that we just want to look good on the outside, we're missing the point of what God came here to do. We're missing it. God wants to fill this room with people who are poor in spirit, who recognize their lack of righteousness and actually run to the feet of Jesus, who will cover us in all of our inadequacies and say, the old is gone and behold, the new has come. So we need to lean into this from God. I can only lead you, I can only lead you to this. You have to actually do the work with God to remove the heart of hypocrisy in you. And so for a couple moments, we're just going to reflect got a couple questions that are going to be up on the screen. And the first question is this, is where has my self-righteousness gotten in the way of reconciliation? Am I responsible for any grudges, anger, bitterness, or hostility that someone has against me? God, how can I faithfully reconcile this relationship? You know, for the next couple minutes, we're going to leave this up. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to kind of solemnly reflect. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, even just for the sober-minded reality that we are broken in need of judgment. But God, your grace reaches us in the midst of our depravity and our lostness and our wandering. Uh, God, you don't just want to leave us with people who are angry and insulting and bitter towards other people. God, that's such a, that's such a low bar. God, your desire for for your community is to be whole, to actually have an integrity to our righteousness. God, positionally in Christ, you've given us a righteousness that clothes us by faith. But God, your righteousness wants to be pervasive in our lives, not just individually between me and you, God, but, but corporately, horizontally. You call us to be reconcilers. God, let us step into that work and be faithful in it not run from it or not be fearful from it because God, what you call us to, you equip us to do. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.